0: Uh, I can't keep all of our secrets or um, Love is a Hunter we also have uh, a little bit of an investigation into Visible Verse at Pacific Cinematheque which will be happening on October 13th Uh, I'll talk a little bit about some of the videos that I found Uh, we'll talk to Heather Haley about her work and this year's festival she is the curator again this year But first, we have our bi-weekly UBC Arts Report with Nicole Kai. Hey, Nicole. Hey, it's me again. (laughs) And today she's going to be giving us uh, a couple of reviews and uh, announcements. And then we're also going to be hearing from Ira Nadel uh, from the English department and Jerry Wasserman from the theater and film department. Um, So welcome back, Nicole. Hey. Yep.
1: Okay, so um, first of all, I'd like you guys to know about an upcoming lecture at the Balkan Art Gallery. Um, it's called K-G-A-Y in LA, or k in LA, I'm not really sure, <laughs> but um, Queer Video and the uh, Politics of Viewership. Um, it's going to be delivered by Julia Bryan Wilson, um, who is an Associate Professor of Modern and Contemporary Art at UC Berkeley and um, it's going to be on October 15th, the Monday, at 6.30, and it's going to be presented in conjunction with the exhibition that's currently on view at the Belkin Art Gallery, which is State of Mind New California Art Circa 1970. I made the announcement about that um, exhibition last time, and I just went today, and I want you guys to know that you should not miss it, because it's great. Um, It's a lot of material, so take your time, Um, but it runs till December 9th, so you have lots of time to explore. Um, A few pieces that I particularly uh, particularly liked, Uh, one of them, actually both of them, our um, series of photograph uh, projections. Um, one of them was of an artist painting on a red wall. Um, so, but in the end, the artist peels it off, and what was thought of as a wall was actually just a piece of paper. And I thought that was, um, and and then the series continues, um, repeats itself essentially. And I thought that kind of. Um, spoke to me as in a way that's um, art is never finished and life is not never finished. Um, yeah, and another one. Um, it's also a series of photograph projections. It's taken at Venice Beach um, over a year of time, and each in each photo, um, the camera moves inchwise um, towards the sea, and it's placed in. a spatial order rather than chronological order. So, um, you might see a sunny day on one photograph, but the next one might be rainy or in the winter. And I really liked it because it really gives you a holistic view of the place. Um, it feels really very real because, um, one place, it, you know, it's always changing, and one photograph can only capture that place at a certain moment. But when you have these photographs put together, you actually see the changes and um, what you might actually see when you go there. And I just thought that um, it represented it well and it's changing entirety. Um, there's also another um, uh, one of the themes was um, it's called art on art and it basically um, plays on the whole um, MFA program at the time in this I believe 70s yes um, and how easy it was to get a degree and claim yourself as an artist and as well as the entire the whole artistic community on the West Coast at the time, and it was said to it was said to be very characteristic of the West Coast because um, apparently the East Coast didn't like to joke about itself. <laughs> um, so that's um, State of Mind, New California Art, circa nineteen seventy. Um, if you'd like to find out more about the exhibition or the c- upcoming
2: lecture. You can go on
1: www.belkin.ubc.ca and yeah, and one more is uh, museum at the Museum of Anthropology um, there is an exhibition called um, Luminescence the Silver of Peru it runs till December 16th and it features more than 140 artifacts assembled from private and national museum collections um, from Peru so that looks really cool and if you're a UBC student you can visit the MOA for free and but the Balkan, the balcon Art Gallery is o- always open for to public for free
0: as well nice freebies for the students if you're <laughs> listening take advantage of your campus and next up um,
1: we have Jerry Wasserman who is the head of Uh, theater and film department at UBC and he he's going to talk about um, the nature of teaching uh, teaching theater and the state
0: of Canadian theater regionally as well as nationally okay great well we are going to uh, it's about uh, 12 minutes this interview and we are going to uh listen to ira and jerry discuss and then we will uh take a break and then when we get back we will uh talk about visible verse and ray spoon's first spring grass fire stay tuned
3: good afternoon i'm ira nadel from the department of english profiling jerry wasserman who for the past number of years has been head of ubc's department of theater and film Jerry's an expert in Canadian theatre and editor of possibly the most widely used anthology of Canadian drama in the country. He's also an actor, teacher, drama critic, and theatrical raconteur. Great to have you here, Jerry. What do you mean, possibly? Okay, definitely. 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 Hi, Ira. Okay. Uh, I want to actually begin with the anthology and ask you, what prompted you to put together a book like that? Back in the early '80s, I mean, Canadian theater wasn't exactly the most exciting of uh, genres.
4: Well, maybe not for you. It wasn't. Uh, I, w- I would have like I like would like to have thought that it was an original idea. There were no anthologies of Canadian drama in the early '80s. Uh, I was teaching a course here in Canadian drama. That it was getting expensive to ask my students to buy twelve separate plays, so I thought I'd. I thought I would be cutting edge and put together a, dra- a Canadian drama anthology, and in 1985, three Canadian drama anthologies were published.
3: That is remarkable. And yet the first only had 12 plays, and I think the most recent edition in two volumes has 24 plays? 31 plays. 31 plays. Yeah.
4: Well, we've, we've come a long way, baby.
3: Yeah, a long way. You know, um, really,
4: there, there's been, there was a kind of a, an explosion of... Uh, of Canadian theater in the '70s, and since then, the you know the volume and the quality has really increased incrementally. So uh, it's a it's a it's a big cultural field right now.
3: I understand that. Is it been difficult to select the kind of plays that you want? That you want them to be representative? Yeah, I presume.
4: Yeah, it's difficult in the sense that you never having you never have enough room for all of the things you want to represent. You know, if you're doing c- anything Canadian, there has to be some regional representation. You want there to be cultural, ethnic representation. You want there to be gender representation. You want there to be um, genre representation. You want to, you want, don't want all dramas or all comedies. Um, and uh, you want um, there to be uh, representation across the chronology, right? So... I, you know I, I could easily put together an anthology of a hundred plays. well, I my would think so would
3: let me well, it's almost an endless project, isn't it? I mean, it seems to me every five years or ten years you could be adding, do you take plays out by the way I do I do why um, why? What is the criteria there? Well,
4: my criterion for taking a play out is that it kind of goes out of circulation. Um, I like to think that the plays in these in this anthology are uh, have some literary value. They can be read as texts and studied in a university classroom. But they're also still in the rep. They're still alive as as production scripts. And uh, some plays just fall out of the rep. They stop getting produced. Um, they date, uh, either you know be the language or the sexual attitudes or or the style and um, or something. Or I find another play that represents say the theme or the author uh the playwright uh m- in a more exciting way, and so it'll bump a previous play, but yeah, I think all anthologies do that once you know once you go into a second, third, or fourth edition what what you're doing is basically taking out the dead wood and and kind of revitalizing it with new stuff
3: so you're described this kind of trajectory of um plays that you add or take away is this parallel to the growth of canadian theater and i'm really thinking in terms of quality not in terms of the number of productions that you know if we could do some sort of statistical study and say well in 2012 there are x number of plays and 10 years ago there were y number of plays is there really a growth in quality do you think
4: I think there is. I, th- I think it's inevitable if you've got ten times as many plays getting produced and ten times as many playwrights writing for the theatre, you're probably going to have maybe not ten times as many, but a lot m- a lot more good plays, just statistically, the odds are. But uh, I think Canadian playwrights have really learned their craft over the last few decades. Uh, Canadian plays have, you know, have played all over the world, Robert Lepage and... And George Walker and Michelle Tremblay and Sharon Pollock and, and Judith Thompson are, you know, are, are they have international reputations and the work is good enough to play anywhere. That wasn't the case in the, you know, the early years of the late 20th century Canadian professional theatre. And so, yeah, so I think the quality is better. Also, the, the variety is better. Canadian theatre, when I first started anthologizing it and teaching it in the, in the 80s, was very white it was pretty white and pretty male, and uh, that's certainly no longer the case. It, you know, it comes in every color of the rainbow now. And The second volume of my fifth edition that will come out next year is uh, kind of uh, heavily skewed towards cultural diversity. There are plays from every um, cultural angle you can imagine in, in that volume, and it's going to be a
3: lot of fun. Sounds wonderful. But tell me, do you see this kind of future of the theatre translating into the possibilities for young actors? Now, you've been so involved with the theatre program for a number of years here. You yourself have acted, of course. Um, Could you be so happy about the future for young Canadian actors starting out?
4: Well, acting is a tough gig at any time in any place. Um, You know, most actors live in garrets and, and starve, uh a, a, a happy few go on to uh fame and fortune and um you know probably the great middle um live fairly comfortable lives but you know no actor is ever going to be able to buy a house in vancouver <laughs> unless they get a lead in an american tv series um not anymore uh and, well, who can buy a house in Vancouver? but that's another story uh I understand there's a really nice townhouse for sale in uh, beautiful Village, but never mind that. Um, no, I, I think the future... F- you know, I'm teaching Canadian theatre history course right now, and we spent the last couple of weeks talking about a long stretch of actually a couple of hundred years where there was no future for um, a prospective Canadian actor unless they went to New York or, uh, or London or, you know, Los Angeles... Uh, And then they might get a job, which in a touring company might take them back to Canada. Now there's, you know, there's a substantial theatrical infrastructure in Canada. It's possible to make a living Uh, as an actor. You probably have to, you know, do commercials and get some TV gigs if you really want to, you know, rise above the poverty level. Um, Theater just doesn't pay that well, comparatively speaking. But yeah, I I think um, the proliferation of acting schools—Vancouver Film School and uh, Capilano, and of course the the, um, uh, schools like Studio 58 and SFU and UBC—but that have been around for a long uh, time—indicates that a there's there's still a a great appetite. Mm -hmm. People want to act. But B, there's also a market, because if there were no market, then I think uh, people would see the writing on the wall. And, you know, you don't want to spend your whole life driving a cab when you want to be an actor. So, yeah, there are opportunities, but it is a, it's, a, it's a tough haul. You really have to be dedicated, you have to be patient, and ultimately, I think, you have to be talented.
3: Mm-hmm. So, does the program today reflect this kind of professionalization? Can you speak a little bit about that? How How it... Sort of uh, has infiltrated, if that's not too strong a word, into your into the program. Sure.
4: Well, in the in the I guess mid 1980s, uh, the the BFA acting program was created, carved out of the BA. And um, the BFA in acting is essentially a conservatory program within a university context. So. Yeah, students still have to do their arts requirements. They still need their language and their English, and they still have to do their electives, etc. But within that context, they're basically doing a conservatory program. It's, uh, they have to audition to get into the class. The class is a cohort, so they're with the same 15 uh, uh, classmates all the way through the three years. And uh, they, there's a good, good deal of professionalization as part of the training, The program brings in casting directors, professional directors, professional uh, um, actors as role models. And uh, they are being, the students are being groomed for professional careers in in the theater and on screen. And uh, for the most part, it's been a very successful program in terms of, uh, I don't know what, you know, sort of the worldwide statistics would be, for how what percentage of students who graduate from an acting program actually become actors. It's probably somewhere less than 50%. Uh, our graduates, the, the percentage is probably more than 50%. So, uh, relatively speaking, I think we, we've had a really good run uh, in the sense of uh, placing our students in, you know, in um, professionally successful situations.
3: Well, now every profession has to uh, modernize, has to be current, mm. s- keeping up with the times, and I know that you yourself have set up VancouverPlays.com. Yes. Could you speak a little bit about that? Um, mm-hmm. And it's, from my point of view, thriving, but from your point of view, it might be just a lot of work. Well, this is, um, this is our hundredth month. Uh, I, I, you look so young. <laughs> <laughs>
4: yes. You know, necessity is the mother of invention. Back uh, in the day when you and I used to uh, appear on <laughs> CBC radio as the book critic and the theater critic, respectively, those were the golden days. And then, you know, we both got booted off of CBC, and I really liked being a theater critic. I liked getting my free theater tickets and, you know, having my name in lights. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, if they're not going to give me a job, I'll create my own job. And and I, you know, this was the, the this was ten years ago or eight years ago. How long ago is it? What's a hundred months divided by twelve? Eight and a half years ago. And uh, I was just sort of learning how to use the internet, um, and everything was kind of going online. And I thought, okay, I'm going to kind of get with the times here. Um, so so I, I did my research, I, I, I researched a lot of uh, uh, theater and culture websites, and um, I found a fantastic web designer who uh, we worked together and created this template, and, um, and I just started reviewing and I publicized myself and I went knocking on doors of theater companies, seeing if I could get people to buy ads on my website so it would pay for itself. And uh, it turned out to be a, a great. My timing was very good. I think um, it, the, it was a, a sort of a flush time economically, and um, I had a little bit of a name in the city. So uh, it's worked out really well. Um, it's the ninth year, and it's um, yeah, it, it's thriving. But it is an awful lot of work. I do it all myself. At one point, I thought about farming out some of the work. You know, hiring reviewers, but. I realized that, A, uh, it was going to just cost me too much money to do that, and, B, I didn't really trust anybody else's taste anyway. (laughs) I disagreed with all the reviews that I had people write for for my website. What good is that?
3: Uh, what good is that? Well, it's a fantastic site, and I hope that many, many people start, or more people start looking at it and learning from it, because I think it's terrific, and it's very insightful and concise. Yes. So that's very, very Easy important. to navigate to. Yes, it is. So finally, let me ask you this. What have you learned? from your career as a theater critic for CBC now the province newspaper Mm -hmm. and of course uh, maintaining your own uh, website vancouverplays.com
4: well I've learned if I've learned anything I've learned one thing if you're an actor be really nice to the critics
3: because if you are
4: they'll remember it and if you're not they'll
3: remember it that sounds like a very smart lesson for yeah. many of us to yes. learn, indeed. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jerry, and I hope uh, listeners stay tuned for future Arts on Air, the opportunity to tap into the work and the lives of faculty and students in arts at UBC. Thanks again.
4: Thank you, Eric. Um, here's one thing that I would love to do. Yeah, sure. I would love
0: cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be?
4: Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be.
5: Join me, your host, Andrew Longhurst, every Tuesday at 5 p.m. for The City An hour dedicated to critical discussions of urban issues. Live on CITR 101.9 FM and CITR.ca. For more info, visit thecityfm.org. On October 18th, the Lab Art Show is bringing you a night of amazing cultural art to benefit the Huichol Aboriginal people. There will be a showcasing of the eclectic works from Jacob Hiltz and Chili Tom, as well as powerful musical performances by The River and The Road. Over 30 different artists are coming together under one roof, so don't miss out on this wealth of talent. October 18th at 560 Seymour. Sponsored by citr one point
0: nine. Thank you very much to Nicole for putting together that interview between Ira and uh, Jerry um, about teaching theater. That was a little something for your UBC students, your UBC theater students. And uh, next up, we have uh, a little bit of information about the Visible Verse Festival. And the Visible Verse Festival has actually been moved. So it used to be during November and is now uh, during October, post-VIF. Now, uh, Heather Haley, for the most part, has been curating and hosting this, uh, this celebration. And I wanted to ask her a little bit about uh, what a video poem was, what separates it from, you know, a short film. And, uh, yeah, she had some, some answers for me. I will say that uh, I was really, really excited about this event. Um, and I started poking around in it a little bit more. And I think it's going to be one of those things that's hit a little hit or miss because there are um, uh, it's a very very extensive lineup, uh, and I I love shorts. Uh, You can see my uh, reviews of the shorts, some of the shorts that I saw at the film festival, and www. C- CITr.CA dot c-a um but uh, so some of them look really great and uh, i thought i before we get into heather haley um i would play uh, a video and you won't be able to see the video obviously um but i have posted these on the arts report october 10th summary on the web and i thought i would play uh one of my Uh, one of the fave ones that I saw. So this is Ian Kateku, Right Side Up. And this is the story of a world that's topsy-turvy. It has a really cool animation uh, along with it, uh, pen and ink animated. And it really highlights the story. So I think it's a good example. Uh, Ultimately, the ones uh, I I put three up, uh, the ones that I liked are very much like short films. Um, But, of course, they are poetry set to imagery. So let's listen uh, to this poem, and then we will uh, speak a little bit with Heather Haley. This is Ian Kateku, right side up, and you can find him uh, just by Googling on YouTube. You can also check out uh, all the information uh, on cinematech.bc.ca slash festival. And I just wanted to note that um, this gentleman is from Canada. So some locals I posted. Here we go.
5: I wonder... If the stars in the night sky ever wished on a shooting human, or what butterflies get in their stomach when they are scared. Somewhere, there was a monster checking for a little boy in his closet. There was an alien who has a complicated relationship with Mother Earth and puts it as his Facebook status. Most times, I still sit on the back of the bus, dream about freedom fighters fighting for revolution on Wall Street, right-handed polar bears and crying hyenas. Most times, the world makes more sense from here. Like how she says she's getting high because the world's trying to say goodbye, or how plants go inside for fresh air. I know Chinese women with English words tattooed on the smalls of their backs. Young girls who would rather burn a beetle to oblivion than play house. Real boys that dream of being Pinocchio, I wonder. When moons hang out, do the lunar cycles match? Do books read human fingers, and if so, what stories would they tell? I've often asked myself if the hunter who assassinated Bambi's mother had a family. Or what would happen if I bit a vampire?
3: Down.
0: Down.
5: Being a well rounded square is cool. Somehow being nerdy is hip. Pop is popular. Indie is not pop because pop is popular. But indie is popular. Doesn't that make indie pop? Woo! Freaking hipsters. Somewhere, there's a cheetah asking to be slower, a sloth hoping to be faster, a microbe wanting to be bigger, an elephant wanting to be smaller. There was a girl on a bridge wishing her feet were lighter, a body of water hoping it was softer. Somewhere, the darkest girl in class is the brightest in the room. How do you ever know joy? You've never known sorrow you know to be brave if you've never known horror and if you've only tasted sour how do you know what is sweet just remember you can only raise your soul until the sky has your feet
2: I'm poet. I published what, I have several books, several collections out, and I um, just finished my first novel, and it's going to be published by Tout World Books, The Town Daughter, um, but I work in lots of media. Uh, I'm also a musician and like to uh, fuse my poetry, spoken word, with, uh, with music. So I do that as well. And then so
0: video is basically another adaptation that's uh, developed. Because I know that, you know, you consider it a leader in the in the visible uh, verse community. Yeah, well,
2: video poetry, poetry, everybody has a different name for it. But it's often called poetry film or video or video poetry. I use video poetry and... Um, but because uh, I've, I've worked with video, it's the most accessible medium uh, for me or has been, you know, because it's it's, it's affordable. You know, what I mean, I can access it, and it's getting easier all the time with technology as it advances. Um, you know, you can get a high-deficient camera now for about $500, right? So that's why I've always used video. But, um, you know, a lot of our, you know, it's, it's very, um, it's diverse. It's as, di- as diverse as the poets and artists that, that approach the, the the, the genre um, so it's kind of a hybrid of, of poetry literature and film or video right and a lot of people there are a lot of different treatments and um, but it's interesting because in the last uh, I'd say two or three years it seems to have kind of boomed right the interest in it in the genre and there are all these sites popping up and uh, moving com, and I mean there's, there's theres there's another one that just came out in Philadelphia but uh, this festival, it, yeah, it's a, the sustaining festival in North America. It's it's been running since 1999, and um, so that's you know that's that's relatively a long time, and uh, and we're still
0: going strong. I'm I was looking through some of the entries um, that I could find kind of online, mm-hmm. and I, I just had a couple of questions. Um, I guess my first question was how you feel a video poem differentiates itself from say a short short um i mean i have some ideas but like in terms of filmmaking Mm -hmm. related to that in the video poem as its own form because i really did find that not all of them but a majority of them you have you know someone reading a poem and then you have images which represent kind of the text Mm -hmm. and what new Layers or new forms? You think that this is beyond, or like, for example, a reading. Well, I mean,
2: obviously, there's the possibility to uh, use imagery, right? And it's it's quite a challenge because with an experimental film or a short film, often, you know, the image is the metaphor, right? So you kind of have to you have to find a way to fuse, or it's it's similar to what I do with music, right? Use the word, the language, with in this case video, right, and uh, or film, but um, and it's quite a challenge to, to, to do that and make it look and to do it well, you know, and to for that synth- synthesis to occur. I, and I've and I long time ago I I called it a wedding of word and image, and um, so one doesn't necessarily need to be, shouldn't really be more dominant than the other. They kind of have to fuse. Do you know what I mean? -hmm. And that's very that integration is quite difficult and it's quite rare, Um, uh, but you know it's uh, and it's as again again you know it it depends on on the artist and their bent. Some people are more filmmakers than than poets, and then other people are going to emphasize the word and the language more than the image because they're a poet, right? Because of the rise of video and everyone using video, right, and and the technology becoming more accessible. It's 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 as I said. It's starting to really become.
0: People are becoming
2: more aware of it
0: as a genre. A good poetry should kind of provide its own imagery. Mm-hmm. You know, verse itself is visible, right? It's it's text. It's it's a visual on the page. Yeah, on the page. Um, so I'm wondering how do these um, pieces <clears throat> expand on that and take that to the next level? Because um some some of them that I I liked that were kind of successful, but I found some of them. It, it, sometimes it seemed redundant a little bit, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you can mm-hmm. um, elaborate on what you think mm-hmm. a successful video poem does for a poem.
2: I would imagine that, yeah, that I mean it would have to enhance it, right? I mean you would hope. And I think that can be achieved uh, through you know it's it's very tricky. it's not easy to do, but I, I can only speak for my own as an artist, right? My approach is, I certainly don't want it to be literal, and I don't want to have a literal image on the screen of what is coming through, uh, through text or through the poem, right? I mean, that's just my approach. And um, But, you know, other people are happy to do that. I mean, who am I to say that that isn't a good video poem, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of up to the poet to adapt his work um, to his own, according to his own. Mm-hmm. But to my, the ones I like best, are the ones that are much more sublime and aren't literal interpretations?
0: Mm-hmm. How do you decide whom you are going to invite mm-hmm. uh, in a way that you know? Well, obviously takes into account your preferences, but also mm-hmm. provides opportunity. I just know when it clicks, when it works
2: right, and I and I'm. It's not about high production values, sometimes I get things that are really produced with lots of money and everything, and I'm not moved by it, right? It doesn't move me, or I don't think it works, right? And sometimes I get stuff that's very... obviously made with very little money, but it's innovative. So I do look for innovation. That's a big thing. That's important to me. And, um... And, you know, literary merit is really important to me, too. But sometimes things aren't... You know, I... Some of the the works that the text would probably not look good on a page or work well in a book, right? But sometimes it can work in this genre. It's just a very nebulous process. Yeah, you know? so it sounds like it's a, a lot of gut. Yeah, a lot of gut work. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I know what I like. It's pretty international, you know. It's pretty global in scope and uh, scale, so I'm I'm excited about that. And uh, and it's it's expanding. I mean, uh, we're we're getting more interest and in, all the time and.
0: That was Heather Haley uh, speaking a little bit about Visible Verse at the Pacific Cinematech this Saturday. So they will be having uh, Alberta artist Philip Jagger, or Satori Dreamtime. He's going to be doing a, a workshop. And it's free. It's from 4 to 6. And he's going to be talking about putting words into video. It's kind of a hands-on workshop with uh, video iPod video jamming software. I do not know what that is. Um but uh then at seven PM there will be it's a two part and uh there's some really interesting stuff. I, I've definitely clicked through um you can uh, there's no links on festival page, but of course you can YouTube them and Google them. And uh, I, I found some cool ones. I put them on the art support uh, page, as you know. Uh, I have one from Dennis E. Bolin and Tara Flynn, who are both local multimedia artists. Uh, and by multimedia, I don't mean, you know, video and electronics. I mean they are authors and performers and uh, musicians and now apparently video people um and now uh so that ask everybody by E. bolan and then uh right side up as you heard earlier today the road not taken which was something that was mentioned by Haley during our discussion uh by swoon dildo and and so what i uh have to say though is that about three or four that i looked into i really really liked and a bunch uh they seemed a little student projecty. i I'm not going to lie. Uh, the swoon build, though, looked really great. And um, the Viva Zombatista from Norway uh, was interesting. And Little Blackstrap I could not find. But that's a George Bowering poem. And one of the things that uh, didn't get to the actual uh, interview uh, that was aired today was Heather and I talking a little bit about directors, who direct other people's scripts, much like some of these uh, video poets have taken a poem. And those seem to be the more successful, or people who create like a little film with music looks great. Um, But some of them, Sky Canoe I was not a big fan of, and um, there was a a couple of our Speleology. Um, they, They really seemed like, as I mentioned during the interview, a little redundant, why does this need Imagery, because we are very visual people, Um, humans are, of all the people, and uh, I find that it it was very distracting from the words, Um, sometimes the text was on the screen, so I think this will be like any short series where it is very... um, it is very hit or miss and i think it's i think it would be worthwhile to go and see with a friend and to experience a, one of the things that haley talked about was that for filmmakers this might be an interesting way uh to see new ways of you know starting a film and then for uh those who are poets a new way of of presenting your poems but I am on the fence as to whether this is going to be a full success. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to Haley. She sounds uh, like a really interesting artist, and and you can definitely check out her work. Um, she sent me some information, so you, uh, I can uh, definitely uh, post her blog, her Vimeo, and I will post that on Facebook uh, after we take a break. But um, I do feel that her obvious kindness and... Um, uh, openness maybe, maybe things need to be cut a little harsher like uh, curating is so difficult um, especially if you're like some sort of program director of film and uh, this may be a situation where uh, we should do a little quality over quantity uh, harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. Um, all right. So we are going to take a break. And when we return, we're going to listen to a little music from Ray Spoon. And we are going to listen to excerpts from my interview with them. And then um, and we, we will talk mostly about uh, their first book. First spring Grassfire, which is a collection of linked short stories which I very much enjoyed. And then uh at six o'clock it's Arts Extra. And this is a place uh every other week where we get a little extra time to do extended interviews. And we will be doing um, the rest of the interview from Ray Spoon where we don't just talk about uh, the book. We also talk about her albums. We talk about, God, we talk about growing up queer. Uh, we talk about empathy. And uh, it was a really lovely conversation. And uh, I'd like to thank her in advance very much for, uh, for having herself on the show. Or, sorry, themselves on the show. Pardon my slip. Um, so uh, we will return shortly.
3: No marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? Want to know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca.
0: is Ray Spoon Ray Spoon started a lot more country back in the day they are from Calgary, Alberta and uh, we have all their uh, albums at CITR but uh, I think Superior You Are Inferior really broke it and then they had uh, Love is a Hunter and then most recently the new release is I Can't Keep All of Our Secrets and, uh, it's interesting to note the development, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, it's actually great country music, and we'll play a little something like that in Arts Extra. But, uh, and you have a little more indie songwriter, and then with, uh, I Can't Keep All of Our Secrets, you get a little more of an electronic. But no matter what type of genre they uh, decide to dabble in, uh, it's always very melodic, very, uh, Pretty and uh, very strong And very personal And uh, I think all of those things really apply to First Spring Grassfire. Fire This is a series uh, Of fictional Loosely autobiographical I guess is what one might call But essentially fictional uh, Stories of a Fictional Ray Who uh, much like the Reality of Ray Moon uh, Grew up in uh, Calgary, Alberta a Pentecostal family, uh, a tough family, a family that uh, had a lot of weight to bear in terms of uh, their background, uh, the issues of mental illness and of uh, abuse in the family. Uh, They even had a a sibling who passed away. And one of the things that you kind of almost bring these up lightly in a way is because uh, these incidents are touched on not with lightness, but rather briefly. And you get a really full range of experience from summer camp to uh, the first kiss to uh, some of these darker, darker events. And more than that, you also get the Taste, the little taste of something even deeper. Um, some sort of perhaps abuse. Um, and I think the reason it was touched on only briefly was because that's not the center of the story. Um, the center of the story of each of these linked stories is one young person's reaction to the hypocrisy critical and confusing world outside and the developing, uh, eventually to be determined as trans, but at the time not really sure uh, what is happening as a youth. And, you know, youth is hard enough um, without being in a situation where who you are is essentially disregarded at best. So uh, what I really enjoyed about these linked Short stories uh, was a couple of things. First of all, I really liked uh, they had a very um, direct voice, much like Ray's music. And there was a voice that was younger and grew with the chronology, the loose connected chronology of the stories. But as you will hear during uh, the interview, they actually uh, didn't write the stories in order And they wanted to really work on creating a full breadth of experience. So that's why sometimes the stories look at overlapping incidents from different angles. And it really keeps the reader, on the one hand, slightly disoriented, because it's close enough in chronology that you expect this kind of smooth arc, and it jolts you. And I have to think that that has something to do uh, with what it's like to grow up in in a very... Uh, for this character of Ray in these length short stories what is a home that's very disjointed and you never know what's going to happen next. So I thought what I would do is to give you a little taste. This is the first story. It's about uh, three minutes. And it's a first very simple story describing uh, the protagonist Ray's... Uh, visit to a Billy Graham concert and it really actually is a great first story and and that's probably why she chose to read it um was that they are encapsulating so many things music um a period of time when you're questioning your faith a very very can be very traumatic period in a person's life and they also talk about their uh you know upbringing with christian music moving towards uh, something more secular so there's a it's a really great introduction uh to the series and uh here is ray spoon reading their uh first story in first spring grass Fire, billy graham all right uh whenever you are ready ray
6: so the story is called billy graham the first stadium concert i ever went to was a billy graham rally at the saddle dome when i was nine i remember taking the sea train in from the suburbs with my family for those of you who haven't been to calgary the saddle dome is a hockey arena shaped like a saddle I had good memories of it because when I was younger I won contests in Sunday school memorizing and reciting books of the Bible, and I was rewarded with tickets to Calgary Flames hockey games. I was excited, but the ice and the flames were gone. Temporarily replaced by AstroTurf, a large stage of risers, and a portable wooden cross. I consoled myself with the fact that I got to wear white corduroy pants instead of a dress, a small victory in my losing battle against wearing my little sister's hand-me-down ruffles, since she had already outgrown me by the time I was four. That night ran like clockwork for an evangelical event, praise and worship, a sermon, and an altar call to those who were lost to become born again and give their lives to Jesus. Some might have strayed from the faith and needed to recommit themselves, something I call born again again. Anyway, it wasn't the type of night I would have ordinarily remembered. Being raised with evangelistic fervor all around me, Pentecostal antics were normalized. At any moment in church, someone could start speaking in tongues, which sounds like a string of gibberish to a non-believer, but it's thought to be the Holy Spirit speaking through people. And even at that age, I'd already seen several people slain in the spirit, when a person spontaneously falls backward as a result of being overwhelmed by God. These events didn't impress me much, nor did the sight of the thousands of people streaming from their seats in the bleachers to march wet-eyed onto neon artificial grass to get a closer look. I was shifting in my chair, counting the seconds on my plastic wristwatch, trying not to panic against the indeterminate ending of soul-saving events. I'd come close to calming myself down just as Billy Graham stopped singing. Looking out over the crowd around the stage, he exclaimed, with sweat pouring down his face and a tremor in his voice, that heaven was gonna be exactly like this meeting, like church, only it would go on forever. It would never end. This was the beginning of doubt for me. I was nine years old and the best presented option I'd had was an eternity of Christian contemporary music. My imagination protested. My mind was full of places and books, where people didn't have to wait for school, for the bus with numb legs and the cold all week just to spend weekends inside of church imagining hellfire. I begged internally for the option of non-existence. I would stare at the slivers of the Rocky Mountains that I could see from my bunk bed and imagine crawling over them like they were tiny pebbles to the ocean. I would look into the clouds for messages that confirmed my doubts and find nothing. Just a huge, God-filled sky over the dry grass on Nose Hill brown after the snow melted and waiting for a lit cigarette to set the first spring
2: grass
0: fire. And that was a reading from First Spring Grass Fire. And what we are listening now is a track from their new album, or most recent album, 2012. Uh, I can't keep all of our secrets. Well, you know what? It looks like we're actually running out of time for the first portion of the Arts Report. So what I'd like to do is wrap up the show and then uh, we will play the whole interview. I edited two versions, but uh, shame on me for taking so long to talk about their book. So uh, I just wanted to uh, give a couple more notes. Um, as you will be hearing uh, in the upcoming interview for Arts Extra. Uh, they will be coming back to town in March to do a reading with Ivan Coyote. Uh, they uh, just did a reading recently with Jeff Burner. And uh, Jeff Burner is also going to be releasing uh, what sounds like a really, really funny novel, uh, fictional. But Jeff Burner uh, transcribed this fictional account of a crazy manager and their twists and turns in the rock and roll industry. So uh, First Spring Grassfire is available from Arsenal Press and in fine bookstores all around Vancouver. And uh, they will also be releasing uh, a new album coming out that is very much like a score because they are working on it during uh, the production of uh, a National Film Board documentary about Ray Spoon. So the interview features some really interesting uh, comments on what it was like to, you know, uh, write while having someone document. And uh, actually, the book itself, the collection, came about in order to, you know, formulate some stories for this documentary and uh, some situations. And then it wound up... uh, just being so good. So uh, I wanted to make one more announcement. Uh, tonight uh, there is a event at the Cobalt, and it will be happening tonight, which is the tenth, as well as the seventeenth and the twenty fourth. And that is called Snag at the Cobalt. Now uh, you can check them out on Facebook uh, if you want to just. Google Snag at the Cobalt. And this week's participants are Jose uh, Rivas, Alex Reck, Adam Lupton, and Brent Clowater. And Andrew Young, uh, who is uh, an artist, uh, is presenting uh, this opportunity to quote unquote snag artwork. Good one, guys. And uh, they will uh, be letting you in for free. You get to watch four, those four artists create paintings live. And then, some very uh, sexy ladies from Concrete Vertigo Burlesque will be um, collecting your raffle ticket money. So, for five bucks, you can get a raffle ticket. For ten, you can get three. And, you know, for, for twenty, you can get ten. And, and then you get to pick up uh, one of these live, just then created paintings. You uh, also will be able to dance to some DJ bikes. So uh, check out uh, Andrew Young and the Cobalt's Snag, Volume 2, which is tonight. And actually next week, Andrew Young will be on the Arts Report to talk a little bit about, um, you know, this is kind of an interesting, unique way to participate in art. So I'm interested in learning a little bit more. So uh, please, please stick around for uh, the... Arts Extra, where we will be playing uh, the entire interview uh, about 20 minutes, 25 minutes of uh, my lovely interview with Ray Spoon. Please stay tuned. And that is all for the official Arts Report from 5 to 6. And uh, thank you so much to Nicole Kai and Ray Spoon and uh, Heather Haley for joining us on the Arts Report this week. And next year, next week, we'll be talking to, as I mentioned, Andrew Young uh, and uh, Schofield for the Writers Fest and more. Listen to us on CITR 101.9, CITR.ca. You can check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash CITR Arts Report and on Twitter c-i-t-r underscore arts report hey, I missed you guys. I missed you guys so much. It's the Arts Report Extra. So we get a little extra time to hang out together and listen to some really great music and interviews. So